passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, well, this morning's text, 1 Samuel chapter 25, is a text about fools. And uh, as I was considering uh, this text, I, I just, I, I noticed that we today have a very different understanding of what a fool is compared to the Bible. So today, when we think of, of being a fool, oftentimes um, it's, it still conveys a lack of wisdom and uh, making mistakes, bad decisions, but normally it also has uh, a sense of like a humorous connotation to the idea of being foolish or, or being a fool. So, for example, this past week, um, uh, well, let me back up. I hate running. I just despise running. But we live in a place where I can't go biking year-round. And so every October, we get to this point of the year where I'm like, all right, I just need to, to face the music and uh, dust off the running shoes and go back to the treadmill. And it's one of the worst weeks of my entire year. And that was this past year, at the, or excuse me, this past mu- a week at the beginning of the week. And if I was smart, if I was wise, I would have taken some time to stretch. I would have taken some time to gradually work up to speed, but I am not smart I am not wise. Honestly, the wise thing would have been to not run at all. <laughs> but anyway, this past week on, on Monday, I decided, all right, I'm going to go ahead and get a run in. And uh, I, after I got home from the Y, I told Crystal, my wife, well, that was foolish. I'm going to feel that tomorrow. And I didn't just feel it tomorrow. I felt it the rest of the week. And that's kind of what we think of when we think of, of being a fool today. It's something that has consequences, an unwise decision, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, not much harm is done. But then you get to the Bible, and you look at what the Bible has to say about being a fool, and you read Jesus' words in the gospel. Jesus says this, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool! will be liable to the hell of fire. And you begin to realize, well, maybe this idea of being a fool is a little bit more serious in the Bible than it is for us today. And you look at the testimony of Scripture and you realize, hey, being a fool is no laughing matter at all. And you see that that according to the Scriptures, this idea of being a fool is a person who lives their life as though God doesn't exist. That's really the definition of a fool according to the Bible, a person who lives their life as though God doesn't exist. And that's the testimony of King David. King David writing the Psalms, he writes two Psalms about what does it mean to be a fool. Psalm 14 verse 1 says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And there are two crucial halves to this verse here. The first half talks about what a fool actually is. A fool is a person who says in their heart, God does not exist. And this isn't talking about atheism. This is talking about practical atheism. This is this idea, this functional idea that no matter what you might say, if you live your life as though God doesn't exist, your thoughts, your actions, your words, your behaviors, your patterns of life, if you live as though God doesn't exist, then you are a fool. 
But notice what else Psalm 14 says. David says that if you live your life as though God doesn't exist, it leads to a corrupt life. Now, David isn't saying that if you are not a believer in God, it is impossible for you to do good. Far from it. Well, that's a gift of common grace, that, that kind acts of, common, or of kindness and, and mercy can come from anyone, both Christians and non-Christians alike. But he is saying that if your life isn't lived in light of the reality of God, then no matter what you profess to believe, it is a far cry from what it could be, And it's a far cry from what it should be. A fool is a person who lives their life as though God doesn't exist. And that's what we see in this morning's text. The life of a fool can be deadly. We're going to continue our time in 1 Samuel, as I mentioned, chapter 25. This text is about a fool. His name is Nabal. But it's not just about a fool. It's about an almost fool. And I just made that term up. But this almost fool is named David. The underlying problem in 1 Samuel chapter 25, facing both David and Nabal, is what we see in, first, in, in Psalm 14 verse 1. They are living their lives as though God doesn't exist. And for Nabal, this is disastrous. It leads to his own death. And for David, it is almost disastrous, if not for the grace of God intervening in his life. 1 Samuel chapter 25 is a unique chapter. It's part two of a three-part story in the book of 1 Samuel. Part, uh, part one talks about how David handles this power that he now has and how is he going to interact with others. 1 Samuel chapter 24, part one. We see that David is aware of the fact that God exists, that God is as a part of every single thing that he does. And when he has the opportunity to kill Saul, to seize the throne that God had promised to him, notice what David says in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6. The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. That's what we're going to see next week in part three of this three-part story. In chapter 26, he has the opportunity to kill Saul, and he refuses because he trusts in God. But in between these two parts, uh, part one and part three, we have part two, which is the story we're looking at this morning, where David lives as though God doesn't exist, that he doesn't care how David lives his life. Life. 1 Samuel chapter 25 is a sobering reminder to us of how quickly we can go from obedience to foolishness. That if you change the, the names, the circumstances, the people that you are interacting with, the, the, the faithfulness of your life will soon disappear if you are not constantly pursuing God. This is a passage that is a sobering reminder of how much we need the grace of God. So let's go ahead and work our way through this story, and then we'll just take a few moments at the end uh, to see or consider what we can learn from it. First, we'll go ahead and start by setting the scene in verse 1. It says this, Now Samuel died, and all Israel had assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So some time has passed between the events of chapter 24 and what we have here in chapter 25. During that time, Samuel the prophet dies. He's mourned by the entire nation. 
And during this time, not only does Samuel die, which is this massive moment in the, in the transition of Israel's history, but David leaves the land of Israel and goes far south near Mount Sinai to the wilderness of Paran. And while he's there, uh, probably trying to run from Saul, he, he eventually decides, hey, you know what, I need to go back to the land of Israel, and that's where he heads. He goes back to Judah near this place called Carmel. Verse 2, and there was a man of Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Here we're introduced to two people we haven't met before. They haven't been a part of this story, Nabal and his wife, Abigail. Notice that Nabal is described first, before we are given his name, by his possessions, by his wealth. It's almost as if the narrator of 1 Samuel is saying, hey, if you're paying attention, you can see what really matters to Nabal. It's his wealth. It's his flocks. It's the things that he owns rather than caring for other people. As we're going to soon see, the most important thing to Nabal is his wealth. That's the only thing he really cares about. And he thinks that wealth is, is meant for him and him alone. He doesn't want to share it with anyone. He's not going to spare any expense on himself. And yet if someone asks for generosity or hospitality, then he will laugh in their faces. It's also worth noting that the, the name Nabal literally just means fool. This man's name is Fool. You might wonder what on earth was his mom thinking when she named him this. It's probably the, actually the biblical authors decided, hey, we're going to go ahead and rename this guy for what he actually is. He is a fool. In contrast, we have his wife, Abigail. Abigail is described as discerning. She is wise. She knows exactly what she needs to do in every situation. I assume that's actually required by being married to Nabal that she know, needs to know how to handle this awful, awful person. You might be wondering, well, how exactly did these two get married? Uh, is it because opposites attract? No, it's probably because it's an arranged marriage. And so over the course of her life, she's learned how to live with this insufferable man, this fool that is her husband. Verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him, Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Let's take a moment to, to set the scene of, of what it would look like in ancient times with a flock this big. Nabal has thousands of sheep and goats to his name. It would have been impossible for his land to support this this flock. And so he does what all wealthy livestock owners in that day would do. He hires some under shepherds and he entrusts different parts of his flock to all of these different under shepherds, sends them out into the wilderness, says, go ahead, you got the next year, go ahead and find a place for them to graze. And then when it's time, I'll call you back and we'll see how well you fared. 
And, it, and, and this would be called the sheep shearing festival. So everyone would come back. They would shear the sheep. This was an opportunity for uh, Nabal to count how many sheep he had lost to disease and sickness or wild animals or to thieves, as well as to see how many he had gained. And when he comes back and this, this crowd uh, begins to have this festival, he begins to discover well, the, the lost column that, that Nabal had planned on is, is a lot lower than he had expected. And, and he's, he's not only receiving a lot of, of, of wool, he's receiving a whole lot more than he expected. That he is, he's being blessed even more than he could have hoped beyond his wildest dreams. This moment, the sheep shearing festival, would be the opportunity to count how good God had been to him. Now, as you can imagine, there's, there's thousands of sheep and, and goats spread throughout the wilderness. Easy pickings for thieves, for bandits, for, for the Philistines just a couple miles away. And that's where David comes in. He and his men decide to be good neighbors, to take care of these men. Rather than uh, robbing them and taking what they needed, they decide to protect them. And we're not sure how long this goes on. The text makes it sound like it happened for quite a long time. And when that summons comes... For the sheep shearing festival, David, knowing the customs about this, this celebration, decides to say, hey, you know what? We've been a part of this. Maybe Nabal will show us some generosity and give us a gift. Now, to our Western sensibilities, it seems like David is, um, at worst, he's running some sort of protection racket. It's like, yeah, you know what? I'll take care of your sheep if you give me something on the side. Nothing bad will happen to them as long as you go ahead and pay me off. That's worst case view of David, or we can just see that he's asking for a handout, and yet that doesn't understand the context of the ancient Near East. David isn't being manipulative in this moment. It was culturally expected for you to show hospitality to others, especially on a feast day, especially when a party was happening. So David isn't asking for a handout. He's essentially asking for something that was culturally acceptable, and he's pointing to his track record over these past months with the flocks as evidence that he is a man of character. Let's go ahead and look at verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. That's an ominous phrase right there. They waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men from whom I, who come from I don't know where? So David's men, they go to Carmel. They're asking to, to partake in this bounty, um, this feast. And, and again, Nabal makes them wait in verse 9. And then when Nabal eventually speaks, not only does he refuse to show David hospitality, which would have been bad enough, he actually berates David. He brings shame upon David. Just as Saul has refused time and time again to, to use David's name, and that's a sign of his disdain for David, Nabal does the exact same thing here. There's this parallel between Saul and Nabal. Both of them fools because they don't consider life from God's perspective. 
Now, before we continue, it's, it's worth noting how socially reprehensible Nabal's actions would be here. Not only does he refuse the common decency of showing hospitality to David during a feast, but he also brings shame upon David's name, slandering his character. And we see Nabal in, in his crudeness and his response and his selfishness that this is a man that doesn't care about anyone else except for what he can get out of others. Let's go ahead and see what happens in verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man, stra- of them, every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. So David is incensed by Nabal's response. He can't believe it. He's so upset that he rallies 400 of his troops to march toward Camel, uh, Carmel. The, the text doesn't leave much to the imagination of what he's going to do when he gets there. Notice it says sword three times here. It's very clear what David is going to do when he finally reaches Nabal. He's going to kill him. And I want us to just pause right here. And if you came from chapter 24 right into chapter 25, that there wasn't a weak gap, let's just pretend we read chapter 24 and we come right into chapter 25 and we are left wondering what on earth is David doing here? Because in chapter 24, David gets it. He goes into great detail about how God is the one who's going to right the wrongs that he has experienced at Saul's hands. He refuses to raise a hand against Saul. He refuses to let his men attack Saul because he's so committed to trusting God, to trusting God's plans, to trusting God's purposes. And then we get to this chapter, and we see a completely different side of David. Now, David has been wronged, yes, let's, let's not make any excuse about that. But he's certainly not been wronged to the same degree that Saul has wronged David, trying to kill him. And David seems to have no qualms about killing Nabal over a few loaves of bread. This is not the first time in 1 Samuel that a man has been willing to kill other people over a few loaves of bread. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 22, Saul slaughters the entire city of Nob because he perceives that the, or he believes that the priests have sided with David and have decided to go ahead and be a part of this coup. And so Saul puts the entire city to death, and it all starts with a few loaves of bread. You see what the text is doing here? It's not only drawing parallels between Saul and Nabal, it's also drawing parallels between Saul and David. This is the heart of these first 13 verses. It's a a warning for all of us that we must hear. It's it's Saul and, and Nabal and David. All of them have this in common, at least when we consider the testimony of chapter 25. They're all fools. None of them is living their life in light of the reality of God's existence. None of them is giving second thought to what God thinks. They're never wondering, well, what would God want me to do in this situation? And that's the message of these first 13 verses. Nabal is a fool ruled by greed. 
And David is an almost fool ruled by vengeance. Neither of them gives a second thought to God. Nabal's God is himself. He only cares about himself. There is no greater affront when it comes to Nabal to his God than asking something from him, taking something that Nabal sees as himself. This is the ever-present danger when it comes to wealth, to allow it to have such a hold on your heart that you give no thought to God. Jesus actually brings this up in Luke chapter 12. He tells this parable about a rich fool. And he, and he says the exact same thing, that if you are consumed by greed, you are a fool. And that's what we see from Nabal here, consumed by greed, and he is a fool for it. David's acting like a fool too. David's God, at least at this point, is himself. His God himself has been slandered, shamed, and David will do all that he can to make things right. Remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David is about to go face Goliath. You remember the reason why he decides to go face Goliath? It's because he enters into the camp of Israel, and he hears Goliath slandering God, slandering the armies of God, and he says this in 1 Samuel chapter 17, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. In chapter 17, David is primarily concerned with the glory of God. And then we see David in chapter 25. Notice what he says. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. David isn't giving a second thought to what God thinks here. There's no statement like what we saw from David last week. First Samuel chapter 24, verse 12, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David, just like Nabal, is not thinking about the Lord, and he is a fool because of it. So David is set off on this very dangerous path, and if he doesn't turn around, he's going to end up as another Saul, another failed king. Praise God that God won't let that happen. Verse 14, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot even speak to him. So Abigail wasn't present for Nabal's slander to David's servants, and it says much about Abigail's character, much about her assertiveness, that a servant realizes the danger, the threat that is coming to face them, and the only way to get out of it is to go and talk to Abigail. Verse 18, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. 
So Abigail quickly gathers together all of this food that she can find. The fact that she's able to take so much food that is set aside for the feast and no one notices that it's missing is just another testament to how wealthy Nabal is in this moment. If you can steal this much food from a feast, there's a lot of food at the feast. And she goes ahead and and she sends it on ahead of her and she decides to follow after to go and meet David. Verse 20. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So Abigail sets out, and then actually the text gives us a flashback here to something that that David had already said, probably at the same time of verse 13. And it tells us how uh, bent on vengeance David is in this moment. Notice there's another parallel with Saul here between David and Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, Saul places his entire army under an oath until he is, quote, avenged on his enemies. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 24. Notice here, David's concern is vengeance on David's enemies, verse 22. He's not concerned with the glory of God. He's concerned about his own glory, making his own hurts right. And that's what we see from David here. When Abigail encounters David, she makes a winsome and powerful speech. It's actually one of the most po- long, or the, one of the longest speeches in 1 Samuel. It just shows us how important it is. And, and it's so long, I'm actually going to break it apart into four different sections just to help us grasp the argument here from Abigail. First, notice that she shows David honor and she pleads for his forgiveness. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Abigail knows that David is the the future king, and so she treats him that way. More than that, she asks David's forgiveness for her failure, not for her husband. She says, you know what, David, all of this would have been avoided if I was there. If I would have just been there, I would have made sure that you would have been taken care of. So forgive me for not being there. Show me mercy. Second, notice that Abigail brings God into the equation. This is, this is the most important part of this speech. It's exactly what David needs to hear in the wake of his vengeance, in the wake of his foolishness, where all he is thinking about is himself. He needs someone to bring God into the equation. He needs someone to, to just help him take a moment and, and think, forget about David. What about God? And that's what happens here in verse 26 and following. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. 
I just want to zero in on one part of Abigail's uh, speech here, and that's in, in verse 26, the heart of her speech. She says this, The Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Abigail is pointing in this statement to God's providential care for David. So unlike David, Abigail has her eyes open to what God is doing. And she's standing before David and she's telling him to relent. And she's saying that through Abigail, God is at work. He's presenting David with the opportunity to turn away from his sin before it is too late. Again, this is a, another picture that we've seen throughout 1 Samuel of how God is at work using the obedience of his people to help the rest of his people, to help someone like David. It's a reminder of how much we need each other. Notice also Abigail reminds David that he doesn't have to seek vengeance on God because God, or excuse me, on, on Nabal because God is going to do that. God is going to be the one who defends David's honor. Verse 29, if men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Through Abigail, God is telling David here, David, remember what you said right outside that cave when Saul was trying to kill you? Remember what you said about fully trusting that I would be the one who would fight your battles, that, that you were trusting me to right all of your wrongs? Go back to that. Yes, this isn't Saul. This is, this is Nabal. But if it's true of Saul, it's also true of Nabal. Trust God to right your wrongs. Last part of Abigail's speech, she begs David not to act in a way that will leave him filled with regret. Verse 30. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or from my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. You hear what, what Abigail saying to David? She's saying, if you kill Nabal, you will never be able to take that back. When you seek vengeance on other people, no matter what they've done to you, you will never be able to take that back. And Abigail is saying to David that if you do this, you will, you will become the king, but you'll become the king with blood-soaked hands. Your hands will be soaked in the blood of God's own people. Don't do it, David. And this is an important moment. Because Abigail's speech, it comes to an end right here. And David has an opportunity to ignore her or to listen. Will, she, will he ignore God's word to him? 
or will he listen? Is David willing to do the hard work of, of repentance that so few people, not just in 1 Samuel, but today as well, so few people are willing to take the step of repentance? He's been asked to consider the Lord. Will he repent of his foolishness? That's what we see starting in verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by, by morning, there would not have been left to enable so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and have granted your petition. Repentance is a beautiful thing. That's the message of these verses. Repentance is hard, but it is beautiful. David, he's increasingly becoming like Saul in his thinking, and yet he listens to God's restraining grace in his life, and he turns around. Honestly, that's one of my favorite things, is we've been studying 1 Samuel, and we'll see it in 2 Samuel too. One of my favorite things about studying the life of David, it's not that he's perfect, he's far from perfect, but he's always willing, when, he's been, when his actions have been revealed, his sin has been revealed to him, he's always willing to repent. He doesn't double down. He doesn't try to justify what he has done. He doesn't go do his own thing. He just listens to God. Repentance is costly. Why does David set out to kill Nabal? It's because he was shamed. And he was doing this to defend his honor. You know what else brings shame? Admitting you were wrong. And yet David is willing to walk the costly road of repentance because he knows that no matter how costly it is, it's better than the alternative. And the same is true for us as well, that repentance is hard, but it is beautiful. No matter how hard, no matter how costly, it will always be worth it. And the rest of the chapter bears that out. The rest of this chapter is a bit of an epilogue. It's not about, this chapter isn't about Nabal at all. It's really about David's heart. And, and the crisis has been resolved that, that David has turned from his foolishness. He stopped living as though God doesn't exist. He, he again trusts the Lord to right his wrongs. And so the rest of the chapter plays out. And it's pretty evident that the way that this chapter plays out is like a billboard to God or from God to David saying, hey, you know what, David, you made the right choice. You did the right thing. And we say, of course he did. Listening to God is always the right choice. Verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. 
When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from doing wrong. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. So here's what these verses are telling us, that Nabal's death is a not-so-subtle reminder that God's ways are best. It's a not-so-subtle reminder that God's ways are best. The way things play out after David repents shows us, it's an intentional message to David and to us, that if you will wait on God, if you trust that God knows what he is doing, that God is going to take care of you, that no matter what you face, God's promises remain steadfast and sure. David wants to go and kill Nabal for the insult that he's received. He decides not to, decides to trust it into God's hands. Ten days later, Nabal is dead. And I don't want to to make light of of Nabal's death, but that's the reality of this. It's a billboard saying, hey, you know what, David, you made the right choice. You did the right thing. You let me take care of it, not trying to do it on your own. And I think that's the important thing for us to take as well. God's ways are better. Of course they are. Of course they are. That God keeps his promises that God will take care of his people. And maybe you need that reminder. Maybe you're not tempted into taking matters into your own hands to right the wrongs you've experienced. Hopefully, you're not thinking what David is thinking here. But maybe you are tempted to rely on yourself. Maybe you're tempted to live life like a fool. To give no thought to the things of God. To leave God out of the equation of your thoughts and your actions, your words, your decision making. Would you listen to the message of Nabal's death here? That God's ways are best. He knows what he's doing. He takes care of his people. Come to the end of this chapter. The text ends with a few words on David's family. We'll talk about those um, verses, um, Lord willing, when we get to to 2 Samuel in a couple months. You can hold me to that. I want us to just consider briefly four things we can learn from this text. From Nabal, David, Abigail, and the Lord. First, let's look at Nabal. Nabal is a sobering reminder to us that only a fool fails to consider God. It is the height of foolishness to to not consider God in your life. That's what we see from Nabal in every part of this story. Here is a man who lives his life on his own terms, no one else's, and his end is a wake-up call for anyone who is listening that such a life is utterly foolish. Only a fool fails to consider God. Second, David. What do we make of David? This man is this beautiful example of obedience and trusting the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and then a fool or almost a fool in chapter 25. Well, I think this passage is a sobering reminder to us of our blind spots. That you, you and I can be really, really faithful in one area and then you just change a few things. A couple of the circumstances change the names and all of a sudden we're disobedient. We're, we're going our own way. It's so easy for us to go astray. 
But this isn't just a warning against blind spots. It's also what, what separates David and Nabal is repentance. That's our second lesson. When God reveals your blind spots, repentance is a beautiful thing. When God reveals your blind spots, repentance is a beautiful thing. Third, Abigail. You consider Abigail in this, this passage, her actions are absolutely amazing. She's, in essence, she's another Jonathan. God is using her to, to point David back to his promises, to keep David faithful. And here's what we can learn from her. In your own life, it is a gracious thing to remind others to look at life from God's perspective. You want to love others well, you want to help others, then remind them to look at life from God's perspective. What if, we, what if we were like Abigail in this chapter? If we did this for those who were around us? What if we were a people who regularly encouraged others, those who are around us, to, to look at life from God's perspective, to live life in, in light of the reality of who God is? It is a gracious thing to remind others to look at life from God's perspective. And then finally, the Lord. This text teaches us how God interacts with his people. All of his interactions are ruled by grace. Isn't that what we see in this text? That when his children act like fools, God offers grace. That when David is a fool, God won't let him go. And he sends Abigail and gives him the opportunity to return. The same is true for you. The same is true for me that when I act like Nabal, not giving a second thought to what does God think, God doesn't write us off. That when we are fools, God offers grace. Let's pray. Father, what good news. That all too often when we act like fools where we don't consider you, you are gracious. Thank you, God. Help us to increasingly look to you, increasingly remind ourselves, remind one another of the beautiful reality that not only you exist, but you care about us, that you care about how we live our lives. Help us, Jesus. It's in your name and for your sake we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.